Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November 23rd, 2016. Yeah, it's uh, going to be the Thanksgiving holiday tomorrow here in the United States of America. <laughs> We're going to be eating turkey and experiencing post-turkey food coma. For which I'm very thankful. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word and check it out. Test to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. It's generally how that works, isn't it? And over and again, we demonstrate that what we're being taught isn't exactly squaring with what God's Word says. Now, this week, short week that it is, we've tried to fill it up with some really good teaching. Today, we're going to have two Roseboro's Ramblings. We're now going to begin our Roseboro's Ramblings through Exodus. That's right, we've finished the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to start off with an introduction to the concept of how... The book of Exodus in type and shadow is kind of the you are here kiosk of the Bible and kind of explains how we're to rightly understand things as far as, you know, our salvation, born in slavery, God delivering us through acts of judgment, things like that. Yeah, he, he, he's done that. In fact, if uh, you are a baptized, penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've been set free from slavery and you are now in your in-between stage, your, you know, your wilderness wanderings between slavery and the true promised land. But the true promised land is not a strip of territory between Egypt and Syria on the Mediterranean Sea. No, that always pointed to something else. New heavens, new earth. Anyway, we'll get into that. So what we'll do today... First lecture is called uh, is called "You Are Here," and this is our uh, you know Roseboro's ramblings through Exodus. We will do this without any commercial breaks. On when we're done, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll get to uh, the next lesson on uh, slavery in Egypt. But uh, here is uh, Roseboro's ramblings in Exodus numero uno. Here we go. So let us pray. 
Lord Jesus, as we open up your word and we begin to study the book of Exodus, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how the book of Exodus points to you, points to you, our Passover lamb, and to our salvation from the dominion of the devil and the drowning of your foes in the waters of our baptism. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we're going to do kind of a little bit of uh, prep work. We're going to be looking at the book of Exodus now. We finished up the book of Genesis, and we've been noting as we worked our way through the book of Genesis that we can see pictures of Jesus in type and shadow. The pinnacle type and shadow person in the uh, book of Genesis is Joseph. And Joseph really, in type and shadow, points us to Jesus' incarnation, his death, resurrection, exaltation, and salvation of the whole world. With the changing of the books, we're going to say the typology is going to get scrambled, if you would. It's kind of like a Rubik's Cube. It's going to get scrambled again, and we're going to put it back together and have a slightly different pattern this time, but it's still working from the same idea that, well, all of this is pointing to Christ. And not that I've ever asked for directions. I need to make that perfectly clear. I understand that there's a clause in the man book that says that you're not allowed to actually stop and ask for directions. But when I've been to the mall, I've noticed that there's a kiosk there at the mall, and it has these funny words on it. You are here. Now, I can neither confirm nor deny that I've ever looked at this kiosk, but what I find in the book of Exodus is this is that the story of the Exodus is the you are here map of the Christian life. I want you to kind of think about that for a second. As the story opens, we are following the story of the children of Israel now as a group. And now here's kind of the important thing. Is Israel, the Israel that's important to God, is Israel that's important to God, those who are genetically descendants of Abraham or those who have the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. Okay, When it says all of Israel will be saved, is it talking about those who are genetically Jewish or those who have the faith of Abraham? Faith of Abraham. So here's the idea. And, and I'll kind of start with a bunny trail first because we're kind of laying some groundwork today. In dispensational churches, if you're not familiar with what dispensationalism is, there's this belief that somehow world history is chopped up into these dispensations and that currently we're in the church dispensation and that when the rapture happens, it'll be a different dispensation. And so what's weird is, is depending on who you talk to about dispensations, they'll talk about potentially different ways in which people are saved during different dispensations which begs the question is, where did they get this information from? Because I don't seem to have the, in the Bible, I can't see it saying, and thus change the dispensation, anything like that. So dispensationalism foists on Scripture something that isn't there, if you would. They, they think that they're reading it out, but it's not. They're actually putting it over Scripture. But here's the idea. In dispensational circles, they have what I would consider not an unbiblical, but an the, a wrong emphasis when it comes to understanding the importance of physical Israel. Now, I want to make sure that you understand what I'm not saying. I am not saying 
that we are Palestinians and that we want Israel wiped off the, off the map. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that just because somebody is genetically Jewish and now lives in the newly reinstituted nation state of Israel doesn't somehow give them some kind of a special status with God. They'll invoke from Scripture that the one who is against Israel has somehow cursed themselves. God curses those who are opposed to Israel, which kind of begs the question, which Israel are we talking about? And so there's a lot of confusion going on, and we as Christians must get this in our heads, is that all of us who are Gentiles, any of you Norwegian here? Um, you know, you Norwegians, I hate to say this, you're not Jewish. I'm pretty sure of this. I do not see any of the people that I know who are Jewish saying ufta, okay, or you betcha, or anything like that. That being the case, though, what is our status as Christians in the New Covenant? And we have to start to kind of lay this all out because then we can see how the book of Exodus becomes like the you are here and gives us a roadmap for the Christian faith. We're going to take a look. I know this is a strange place to start. We're going to start in the book of Romans. And we're going to start at chapter 11. And we're going to know what Paul says. We'll review Hebrews 11. This will help us to kind of get the important things. So Paul says in Romans 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah? And watch how he's talking about his people, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Kind of setting the table here, if you would. And so you'll notice here, this helps us. So if, let's say, hypothetically, the current nation state of Israel, that they enact a policy that is contrary to just basic human rights, and the United States of America says to Israel, that policy of yours is bad. You need to rethink your policy. We are not in agreement with you. Are we opposing Israel? No, we're not. Are we opposing an Israel that if we disagree with, that God is going to curse us? No. All right, And this is where you've got to pay attention in Scripture because when Scripture talks about Israel... It talks about Israel in several different ways, and you need to note in which way it's referring. The first way Israel is used is of a person. Jacob has his name changed to Israel, the one who struggles with God. His descendants are the children of Israel. They are physical, genetic descendants. But the physical, genetic descendants are not the ones of note, 
And we know this because one of this, this is one of the passages. And just think about this. When we read in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, did that take place in Rome or did it take place in the nation of Israel? Nation. Took place in the nation. So it took place in the so-called promised land. I'm saying that on purpose. Among a people who are the chosen of God. But how many of them had the same faith as Abraham? The same faith as Israel? According to this text, there was only several thousand who had not bent the knee to Baal. And God had kept for himself a remnant. Does that make sense? So when we're talking about Israel, are we talking about the person? Are we talking about the nation state and those who are genetically descendants? Or are we talking about Israel who are those who trust in the Messiah? Because the Scripture talks about Israel in different ways and it's important to pay attention because the ones who are cursed of God for opposing Israel are not cursed for opposing a nation state. And this makes perfect sense when you understand who was it that God sent to punish Israel for their continued insistence and stiff-necked stubbornness to refuse to repent of their idolatry. God sent Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, not only did he oppose Israel... 90% of everybody who was genetically Jewish at that time lost their lives in that campaign. Only a remnant, 10% of them, survived the ordeal. Jerusalem itself was sacked. The temple was destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down. Did God punish Nebuchadnezzar for opposing Israel? No. Nebuchadnezzar dies in the faith. In fact, We've read this before. There's a letter written to you from Nebuchadnezzar. Have you read it in the book of Daniel? It's actually addressed to you. You should read it. So here's the idea is that there's some really bad ideas that somehow the nation state of Israel reestablished in 1948 is some kind of a sacred cow. It's not. The nation state of Israel for the most part, is like every other nation on the earth, comprised of mostly unbelievers with a remnant of those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And it's not easy for those who are Christians living in the nation state of Israel to preach the gospel. It's not. So which Israel are we talking about? So let's continue with this text. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the description of the hardening of those who are genetically descended from Israel. What did God do in the year 70 A.D. through the hands of the Romans? He destroyed Jerusalem and he scraped, and I mean this, 
It was like God's hand took the temple and scraped it off the temple mount. The temple stands in a rock heap off to the side of the temple mount to this day. Now, I'm going to make a note here. Due to this simple historical fact, there is not a single person on planet Earth who is capable of practicing biblical Judaism. Not one person. Does not the Mosaic Covenant demand animal sacrifices at the temple? There hasn't been true Judaism on planet Earth since then. Which kind of begs the question is, what are we Christians? What are we exactly? Are we a departure from Judaism? Or are we exactly the same as, well, Abraham and his faith? I kind of want you to think about these things. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has now come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, that would be you Norwegians, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Norwegians, notice what I did there, right? (laughs) I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the, so the whole lump is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were, watch this, broken off, and you Norwegians, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in, I would say a very cold, snowy olive shoot, um, <laughs> you were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, Do but fear, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this, mystery brothers. A partial partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's kind of a lot to to take in all at once, but kind of get this, the gist of this. And you notice that Paul here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking about Israel in two ways. Genetic Israel and those who are in the olive tree. Israel is a cultivated olive branch We Gentiles 
have been grafted into Israel by God. Those branches that persisted in unbelief, they've been broken off. Are they part of Israel anymore? No. In the same way that a, you know, a dozen roses is no longer part of the rose bush on which they grew. So you, when we talk about Israel, the person, those who are genetically descendants, those who are grafted into the olive tree, that's us. In other words, I'm looking at Israel right now. So Janet, you can say, Ani Israelit. I'm an Israelite. Right, yes. I say, Ani Israelit. Dom would say, Ani Israeli. Israelit is the feminine, masculine is Israeli. So in this sense, this is what, where we have to pay attention. And it's, it's a lot like how the word law is used in Scripture. Sometimes law is referring to commandments. Sometimes law is referring to the Torah. Sometimes law is, you know, it's something totally different than even that. So they got wide, narrow. And the word Israel has a very narrow, narrow, narrow sense to one person. It has a slightly wider but still narrow sense referring to a group of people who are descended from that guy. But then it has this broad term that is quite mysterious, and it actually is referring to us. And the church hasn't replaced Israel. The church has been grafted into it. You see the difference? Am I wrong in assuming that that would be a huge stumbling block <coughs> for those who grew up in the culture of hating Israel, mm-hmm. like the Iranians, Iraqis, telling them that they can become Israel? They don't want to be part of that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all kind of part of the stumbling block of it. Let me give you a, a, another historical example of this that, that will take it out of the Middle East context for a second. Let's put it into Europe. At the time of the Nazis, I don't know if you remember this in history, but the Nazis were not fond of the Jews. In fact, those who were genetically Jewish were scapegoated for all of the problems in Germany and Austria after, after the Treaty of Versailles and the, uh, the ending of World War I. They were scapegoated for everything. And part of this kind of philosophically goes back to, and this is one of the you know, ingredients in this, is, uh, the, is the writings of Nietzsche. I don't know if you've ever read Nietzsche. It's quite awful. Um, and what Nietzsche basically did, he was kind of talking about why is it that we follow the moral law that was given to a group of people who were slaves. And so the moral law, the Ten Commandments, they, Nietzsche hated them because he considered that slave morality. And so he came up with this clever way of describing things, and he basically said, you know, why don't, you know, why don't we follow the, you know, some kind of a, of a moral law from a people who are healthy, strong, conquerors? And he kind of told the parable of how Um, wolves do not follow the moral law of sheep. So when a wolf kills a sheep, other wolves say, that's a good job, good on you. But if you're a sheep, you're thinking, that's terrible. Wolves are bad. But if you're a wolf, you think, that's great. Okay, lunch, exactly. So the idea here is is that he he likened morality as something that isn't, isn't universal and applicable across the board. He basically said morality is actually connected to the community that you are a part of. 
So if you're part of the German community, well, the Germanic community, the Aryans, we were strong conquerors. We were out there. We are the ones who resisted the Romans and we did all this stuff. You know, we're, we're German. We're raw. So why would we want to embrace a slave morality of Jews? Is the way Nietzsche argued. And so what happens is, is that as Nietzsche's ideas infiltrate into Western European culture, especially in Germany, where they've already got this propaganda where they're blaming all of their problems on the Jews, what impact then is this going to have on Christianity? Well, the, um, there was a movement then in the in-between years between World War I and World War II, and the name of the movement was called the Deutsche Christian Movement, or the German Church, or you know, the, you know, the Deutsche Kirche, uh, movement, the, 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 the German church movement. And you know what they set about to do? To remove all of the Jewish elements of Christianity. And the question is, how do you do that? Jesus was Jewish. And so they literally, they hated Judaism so much and Jews so much, they sought to create kind of an Aryan Christianity and get rid of all of the Jewish pieces of it. The Old Testament was practically out. Certain parts of the liturgy disappeared. You didn't talk about Jesus' Jewishness. And so what this ends up doing is totally changing the Christian faith altogether. The Deutsche Christian, the Deutsche Kirche movement, that's not Christianity. If there are any adherents of it today... They're not, they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. They're heretics. And so the idea here is, is that, and, and we need to get this, a large part of the world is extremely anti-Semitic still to this day. I mean, the whole Muslim world is extremely, viscerally anti-Semitic. So we don't get to fall into that category. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Christ has bled for the sins of everybody. So we don't get to entertain racist thoughts of people, nor do we get to scapegoat by race. This is evil. It's wrong. And when we see it, we need to stand against it and call it out for what it is. That's sin. That's a breaking of several commandments. You stand up for them. At the same time, we also have to come to grips with Christianity comes to us directly through a Jewish line. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of who? David. How long? Forever. Now, I have of the opinion, just kind of doing some basic work with the tribes of humanity that our depiction of Norwegian Jesus is a little, little white. <laughs> He's a little bit white. I think his hair was probably darker than that. He probably had olive skin. But I find it fascinating throughout Christianity around the world that there's always this tendency to portray Jesus according to the tribes that we're from. In Africa, Jesus is often portrayed as an African. I have artwork depicting Jesus with Christians in Asia where Jesus looks decidedly like, well, he's Asian. See, that's kind of the idea then, if you think about it, is that he's one of us. And that is right. He is 
one of us. And we've got to get this. Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. We are all human. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. So let's continue then, looking then at Romans so we're getting our basis. So as regards to the Gospel, those who are genetically Jewish who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they are enemies for your sake, but as regard elections, as, as regard to election, they are loved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is still holding out His hands to the Jews today, telling them to repent and to believe in Christ. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, you've now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So God still loves them, still cares for them. And in Scripture, it describes God as continually holding out His hands, His arms, calling to a stubborn and a stiff-necked people. Calling them to do what? To repent. To believe. To be forgiven. Now this is another important note here then. We've all heard of what's called Orthodox Judaism. You've heard of it. Now I I, want to make something very clear. In Christian circles, when we think of orthodoxy, okay, it can have one of two meanings. You're either talking about the Eastern Church, like the Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox. It's kind of like a denomination. Or you're talking about orthodoxy in the sense that you're, you're discussing Christians who actually are orthodox in their doctrine and their theology. Does that make sense? So when we talk about orthodox Judaism, that's what it's called. But I need to make I kind of reiterate what I said. There isn't a single person genetically Jewish who is capable of of practicing biblical Judaism. So the question is, where does Orthodox Judaism come from? What is its theological predecessor? Answer, the religion of the Pharisees. Were the the Pharisees heretics or were they true Jews, truly Jewish in their religion? Huh? They were pretending to be Jewish. Okay, but they were heretics. Where in the Old Testament is the office of Pharisee ever mentioned? Nowhere. When we get to the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian. (laughs) When you get to the book of Malachi, and the book of Malachi closes the revelation of God in the Old Testament, and then there's a 400-year period where God does not speak. When the Old Testament closes, how many times are the Pharisees mentioned? Zero. Zero times. So when the New Testament opens with the preaching of John the Baptist, if you're, if you're reading it from cover to cover and paying attention, right? You've never heard of a single Pharisee if you're just reading the Bible cover to cover. And you know that there's this 400-year gap. The, the lights turn on 
This, you know, and everything opens with the preaching of John the Baptist in the Gospels. And you hear of these Pharisees who are on the scene. Your immediate question should be, who are these guys? Where did they come from? Where did they come from? The answer is they came up during the intertestamental period. After, after the Jews come back from captivity in Babylon, conquest of Alexander the Great and the cultural frictions that were created by that. And, and this is where it gets interesting. Daniel himself prophesies about Alexander the Great quite explicitly. He shows up and Jerusalem is not destroyed. Alexander the Great did not sack Jerusalem. You know why? Read Josephus. Josephus explains this. The Jewish high priests go out you know, to have a parlay with Alexander the Great and say, we expected you. Let me show, where, show you what our prophet says here in the book of Daniel about you. And Alexander the Great thought, well, this is the best thing ever. And he didn't sack Jerusalem. He didn't conquer it. He didn't need to. They basically bent the knee. They, they could see the handwriting on the wall that this guy was going to conquer the whole world. And he did. In the intertestamental period, Israel now is no longer sovereign. Israel is under the control of what's called the Ptolemaic Empire. Because after, after Alexander the Great dies, and he dies really young, what happens to the empire that he created? It's cut up. It's cut up into four pieces. This is where we get the story of Cleopatra and all this kind of intrigue going along with those lines. And this is before the Romans. But here's the thing. They bring in Greek culture, Greek, the Greek language, which is why Koine Greek becomes the language all over the, all over the uh, empire. But with the Greek culture, they're bringing the pantheon of gods. And, and it was a real big cultural rub for the Jews in that time. And there was like there were there were battles and wars and fighting against in order fighting for their right to remain Jewish and all this kind of stuff and in that turmoil in the midst of all of this the Pharisees rise up they rise up and they come with this message that God not only gave us the Torah he gave us the oral Torah so they've got the secondary word from God and this tradition of the elders, and that this is as binding, if not more binding, than the written Torah, because this is, and this is the way they kind of couched it, the oral Torah was given to us so that the Gentiles would never hear it. So when the scene opens on the Gospels with the preaching of John the Baptist, there are the Pharisees, they're in control, and their theology and their doctrine is not Christian, it's not biblical. They've added to the Scriptures. And Jesus is constantly having this collision with them. And what are they for real? They're heretics. That's literally what they are. And He's constantly in collision with them. But Jesus is crucified, died, buried, raised again, ascended into heaven. And Christianity begins to spread. They continue offering sacrifices at the temple as if... It's, you know, it's this unbroken chain. And then God sends the Romans and wipes the temple off the temple mount. And the Jews that survived, the last people standing were the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the last people standing. And so it was the Pharisees 
who created the Jewish religion that we see today that is known as Orthodox Judaism. How do you remain a Jew and worship Yahweh without a temple? They came up with the solution for that. Does that make sense? So, what is, you know, what is the religion in modern-day Israel today? Is it biblical Judaism? No, it is not. It is the Pharisees' religion kind of morphed into a 21st century version of it. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It has nothing to do with Old Covenant Judaism at all. It's very detached from it. Now, I say all of this so that you can kind of rightly kind of orient yourself in your thinking, because like I've said then, the story of the Exodus becomes for us the kiosk that we can say, here we are. Because the story of the Exodus is actually the same story about us. Because it's written about us in type and shadow. So when the scene opens in the book of Exodus, without even looking at it, where do we find Israel? Where are they? They're in Egypt. They're not in their land. They're in Egypt. Who is in charge of Egypt? Pharaoh. Is he a good guy or bad guy? What is their status in Egypt? Slaves. Hard work. Turmoil. Constant, you know, this just being ground into powder. Now, Think about this for a second. Without even looking at it, you can begin to see how this is starting to play out. Okay, Let me show you a text. Ephesians 2. Oh, no, let me, let me do this. Romans 6. Romans 6. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so the grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, by Him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of night. For if you've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And you're thinking, what's all this baptismal stuff have to do with anything? Stay with me. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So when the story opens in Exodus, the children of Israel are in slavery. In slavery to whom? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is what? Pharaoh is a God king. Is he a true God or a false God? False God. Let me give you another cross-reference. And so here we've got this, this theme in Scripture of enslavement, but there's a little bit more. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15. The firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile Himself to all things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." 
And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled by his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And so you get this idea of what Christ has done. But there's also a mention of the fact that he has delivered us. Verse 13, going back, he, Christ, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. So the word for dominion or domain is exousia, so the power of darkness. So Israel finds itself enslaved to a false god under the dominion of darkness, if you would. And the story of the Exodus is God's great rescue of Israel from slavery into freedom as they spend an entire lifetime wandering in the wilderness, because 40 years is a generation. They spend an entire adult lifetime in the wilderness, and then they're finally taken into the promised land. So here's the idea. The, this is the map that says you are here. Okay, so where are we? We were all born under the dominion of darkness, enslaved to sin, death, the devil, the false trinity, if you would, a false god. And Christ, through a mighty act of judgment, the death of the firstborn, seeing the theme here, our Passover lamb, frees us from slavery, washes us in the waters of the Red Sea, and thus destroys the dominions of forces of darkness. Think baptism. We now are wandering in the wilderness in the in-between, from the in-between of slavery and the fulfillment of the promise, which is the promised land, eternal life. And where are we right now? We're with Israel. We've gone through the Exodus, but we're not yet there. You see it? All of that is the big map. And so what Israel goes through physically in their lifetime is in type and shadow, pointing us to the grand narrative that we are caught up in. This is our story as well, and it's not narcissistic to think of it in these terms. So that's how we're going to approach the book of Exodus in the days of he- ahead, looking at the parallels between w- how Israel finds itself, how we find ourselves as grafted into Israel, here now in our wilderness wanderings, how Christ feeds us through his heavenly manna, which is what? The body and blood of Christ, right? As he takes us to the real promised land, the new earth all there. It's all there for us to see. And when you can draw the connections, and you can only draw the connections if you see that the fulfillment is in Christ. And once that key unlocks the Old Testament, now you can see how it all comes together. Well, you once again confused me. I did, of course. But here's here's what I'm confused about. I've been following you along, and it makes good sense all along of how this this roadmap leads us. But we have people today that call themselves Christians Mm -hmm. that are against Israel. Don't go there. Yeah. Why? All right. 
I'm going to basically say that those who are within the visible church who are opposed to Israel. Now, I have to name names here. Look at the policies of the ELCA. They are pro-Palestinian. Okay? I think that is a direct result of their wicked and evil doctrine. Okay? And the idea then is that because of their wicked apostasy their refusal to believe that the Bible is the inerrant and authoritative Word of God. It has caused them to think that evil is good and good is evil. And that then impacts how they view the world as far as what type of you know, governmental policies and foreign policies should be in place. But you ask them and you push that towards them, they will tell you that I am old-fashioned, that we should... This Bible, you know, it was written by people, not God. And, mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not to be, you know, we need to have this interpreted correctly. And I'm going, yeah. And they said, you're not correct. So therefore, right. I shut up and let them right. be, and I go my way. Here, here's the issue. Again, the one who would side with Islam against Israel does not know their Bible. They don't. They really don't get it. And so... There, there, are, there are many problems there. And the core problem, that, and this is a little bit too much to talk about in this class, the core problem goes to what I would call the operating system that's running on their brain. If you were to think of your brain as like a computer operating, a, a computer, right? But your, your, your brain can run on Windows or it can run on the Mac. Now, Christianity is the Macintosh. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, just saying. I don't know why that's so funny. But yeah, okay. But there's another operating system which is really wicked. Now, let's talk about this real quick, and I'll just kind of crack it open. The operating system that their brain is running on actually goes back to the philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. And it's his epistemology, that's what that's called. That's the operating system that their brain is running on, is, is what is causing them to twist Scripture in this way. But that's a lot more to talk about than we can talk about in Sunday school. But it's probably a worthy topic to consider unpacking at some point. But this is the reason why. It's Kant's operating system that is ground zero for the problems that are going on in the ELCA today. Okay, And that's what's forcing them to view the Scriptures the way they are. And they are in deep, serious apostasy and error. Is the best way I can say it. If they do not repent and be forgiven for their idolatry. And I'm not talking about their view of Israel, it's their view of the Scriptures. They're calling you old-fashioned because you're, you're standing with the church historically. It's the faith once delivered to the saints. As if somehow being old-fashioned is a bad thing. No, no, no. Being innovative is the bad thing. That's idolatry. But, you know, we'll save that for another time. Mark, last question. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's the other extreme. Right. That is absolutely the other extreme. Everything that Israel does is right because God's. Right. So we we don't we do not say that everything Israel does is right. Nor do we side with the Palestinians and the Muslims who want them wiped off the face of the earth. We do not. We do. We avoid both poles. And understand that we as Christians are grafted into true Israel. And so we, had, we approach them the way we would Great Britain, France, Belgium, and the like. All right, We see them in the same way as them. 
period. Yeah. yeah, the country is the country. True Israel is not a country. It's yeah. True. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. True Israel cannot be pointed to on a map. I'm looking at true Israel right now, and once we leave here, you guys go blend back into the into the landscape. So I can't point to North Dakota or, or you know Western Minnesota and say, "Well, there's Israel right here." You can't point to it on a map right now. Israel is the people. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Those who have the same faith as Abraham. All right, that's prolegomena, our kind of lay the groundwork. We'll catch us again next week. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at fire Christian. Quick break when we come back. Lecture number two, Roseboro's Ramblings Through Exodus, as we look at slavery in Egypt. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We'll pillage, we plunder, we rifle, we loot, drink up, be hard as your hoe. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, bring up, be hard as your hoe. presents Church Day Select. And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Uh, do you know why I called you in here today? Am I in trouble? Oh, no, 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 of course not. We're just worried about you. Is this about my tithes? You know, I- I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. Well, you hate me now, don't you? Oh, no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithe quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it. My Attitude? Oh, yes, your attitude. You see, we're all about our Congress having audacious faith, but we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being audacious during services. Um, are you talking about the Holy Ghost, Hokey Pokey? Is I not dancing right? You know, I, I tried practicing at home, but when I put my whole self in, I fell over and injured Fluffles. Who is Fluffles? Well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if it was breathing. Okay, we we seen you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services, but you can at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with sing-along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them? 
When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it. And a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin. But let's get back to the present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service, then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, won't you please be more audacious and just do the hand motions? Well, last year, I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball, and... Uh, the interview is not going as expected. Well, I, I was practicing hand motions, and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye, and the car swerved, and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer. Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower, which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him. But Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back. Well, that's finally something positive. I bet you anything, Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church. Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus. Uh, well, I think we'll have to schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never. I, I mean months. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today.
morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think what the Bible says is true, that not all who are descended of Israel are Israel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute well. An amount that you pick. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then lastly, Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great, great way to support us. And the reason for it is simple. is It helps us have a predictable foundation that we can rely on month after month so that we can budget properly, plan our next uh, exploits, and things like that. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is uh, lecture number two as we're introducing Roseboro's Ramblings on the book of Exodus. And we're going to take a look at Exodus chapters one and two as it relates to slavery. Here we go. Okay, grab a Bible, something to write with. Come and have a seat. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, you've called your church to witness that in Christ you have reconciled us to yourself. Grant that by your Holy Spirit we may may proclaim the good news of your salvation so that those who hear may receive the light of salvation through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Today we begin formally looking at the book of Exodus. And in our first class, kind of in preparation for this study, we noted that Scripture uses the word Israel in several different senses. Uh, One of the senses is it's referring to the particular guy who was named Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel after he had that nighttime wrestling match with Jesus, which again is one of the most bizarre stories in all of Scripture. Jesus shows up and says, hey, want to wrestle? It's like, okay, let's do it. It's kind of like the uh, the Princess Bride. <laughs> That's kind of how I picture it. After that, um, the the other way in which you can talk about it, you could talk about it as Israel, as re- literally referring to that strip of land between Egypt and Syria. That's one way you, you talk about it. Then you could talk about the p- children of Israel, those who are genetically descended from Abraham. And then the scriptural distinction, not all those who are descended from Abraham are part of Israel, nor are they children of Abraham. True Israel, the thing that it all points to, is that those who have the same faith as Abraham are children of Abraham and are part of Israel. And so there's Norwegian Hebrews now, because you guys have all been grafted in to Israel. We've all been grafted in together. Now, as we look now at the story of Exodus, we're going to see a changing up, kind of like a reshuffling of the deck when it comes to biblical typology. And another way to look at biblical typology is you can kind of talk about it as in motif form. 
This is a motif, a, a kind of a theme or a motif in Scripture that kind of recurs. And so as the story opens on the book of Exodus, we're going to find that Israel is enslaved to a God king. Y'all remember you know, having to take world history as freshmen in high school? I know you guys took copious notes. Y'all remember world history? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I oftentimes go back and like I review the Fertile Crescent and things like that, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> no, that's a cornucopia. All right. Make a note to self here. Okay. Copious is like extensive notes. It's another way of putting it. But if you remember back, and we study that what's called the Fertile Crescent. And what was, what was one of the major features of the kings in the ancient world and, you know, in the area of the Fertile Crescent? They were God kings. They were seen as gods on earth. And so as the story opens, we're going to see that Israel, and notice this is type and shadow pointing to something that's the reality. Israel is in slavery to a false god, a false god, and who's the, who's the king? And we're going to hear about death of the innocents. We're going to hear about the birth of a savior. And then we're going to hear about salvation through water for this savior. And the funny part is, is that, you know, if I were to ask you, when we read the story of Moses and him being saved from being killed, and I would say, what was he put into in order to be saved rather than killed? You'd say, uh, well, you'd say a basket, right? The Hebrew word is ark. I am not joking. Moses was put into an ark. Which would make, it would be an ark for a Right. I think, I think that's uh, but it's the exact same word used for Noah's ark. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, they, did, they haven't, re- you know, it, in fact, you you probably recreate... Moses's ark for on the cheap, as opposed to Noah's ark. You know, you go down to you know, go down to Cincinnati and take a look at the new Noah's ark that they have there at the Creation Museum, which I'm really, I'd really like to see that. So, but that's a different story. I'm off on a tangent already. So these are the things we're going to pay attention to today as we open up, and then we'll note how this points to the situation that we find ourselves in, because Israel here, the people of Israel, they're the type and shadow, pointing to the reality, which is true Israel, which we are all a part of. And so, like I said, that this is like a map that says, you are here. So if you have been baptized, set free from slavery to sin, on your way to the promised land, then you know where you are, right? You're currently in the wilderness of the in-between time of having been set free from slavery on your way to your eternal abode. So that's the idea. So the wilderness becomes, well, a very interesting parallel to our own lives as Christians, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. So Exodus chapter 1, that's Romans Here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers 
and all of that generation. For the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So things have not gone well for Israel. And how long did this go on? Anyone remember more than that? Lots of time. I think we're up to, what, 400 years this goes on? 400 years. That is a long, long time that this goes on. It's not as long as it is for our time. We live a little longer than here. It's still. You live, in, you live as a slave, hard work and labor. Your, your lifespan is going to just tank. You're going to go into the grave quick. So this is the kind of stuff that will, will, will kill you quickly. Now... Kind of pick up on the theme then. So one of our motifs is slavery to a God king. All right, let's take a look at a couple of things that kind of point this out biblically, what this motif is looking at. And I quoted this passage today in Colossians chapter 1 in the sermon. And let's take a look at it. Um, Colossians 1, I'll start at verse 9 for our context. Here's what it says. And so from the day that we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion or the domain of darkness He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. So here, this we start to see the connector points. Remember, this is type and shadow in Exodus, pointing to the reality, which is really pointing to where we're at. This is our story as well as theirs. See, each and every one of us, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, because of their sin against God, we were born under the dominion and domain of darkness. And like I pointed out in my sermon today, you know, we're all familiar with dictators and tyrants and what they have, the, the, the human wreckage that they've created in human history. I mean, you think of how many tens of millions of people died under communist Stalin Russia, the six million people who were exterminated in the Holocaust because of Hitler, and then we don't even want to talk about Pol Pot and other, you know, tin penny dictators around the world that rise up. And all of those dictators, in a way, kind of give us a, a very interesting way of viewing the devil. He is a lot like that. He is a lot like that. In fact, the devil is a lot like Pharaoh here. 
putting these people in slavery, making their lives miserable, and just grinding them into powder. Now, all of this, then, is in a very real way, you know, part of what we see as the result and the consequences of our rebellion against God. In Genesis 3, it's good for us to remember what Genesis teaches. Now, the serpent, in Genesis 3.1, was more crafty than all, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What's he going to do? He's going to enslave her, really, through all of this. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, ate, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now watch how the curse works. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel, and you shall bruise, uh, he shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise your heel. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And everyone, the woman said, thanks, Eve. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And watch how the motif for them works. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here we see as part of the curse, humanity is put into a situation where the only way in order to meet our needs is for us to work, toil, anguish, pain, suffering. It's for the birds. And so there, there's kind of your motif. There's your motif going all the way back to the garden. And then coming then into this story, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work they ruthlessly made them as slaves. So here's the idea. Coming up then in type and shadow, you can see, all right, there's something going on here. This is a grand meta-narrative, if you would. It's a big sweep. So the story itself in the book of Exodus points us in very stark parallel to the situation we find ourselves in. The devil being that ultimate tyrant and dictator, 
The one who is so self-absorbed and self-obsessed wants people to worship him the way they worship God. He wants to exalt himself even above God himself. To what end would that leave us? Literally enslaved, hard labor, no care. You need to just keep working hard for the devil. And when you're ground to powder, they stick your body into the ground. And who cares? We'll, we'll grab the next guy and do the same thing to him. This is all part of the curse. You have a question? Okay, Marilyn, you have asked a, a loaded question in a sense. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to give you the biblical answer for it, and I'm going to give you the biblical answer for it, and I'm going to give you the biblical answer from next week's epistle text. There is a sense in which what you're describing. You're describing, it's like, why are people so stupid? Why are they believing these lies? Why aren't they trusting Christ? Why aren't they being forgiven? It just seems like, are they, are they thick? Do they have low intelligence? That's not the issue. Let's take a look at next week's epistle text, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll get a little bit of a preview for next week. And... What we're going to read here about what happens, what God is doing, keep this in mind. There are many other cross-references where God speaks in this exact same way. And I'll give you another one. You know, I'll give you a text from Romans on this as well. Second Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Yeah, see, they were, they were sending out you know, false letters you know, claiming to have come from the apostles. Oh, I wish you'd all been ready. The Lord has already come. You've been left behind. Okay. <laughs> That's literally kind of like what was going on here. So let no one deceive you in any way, he says, for that day will not come unless the... Rebellion comes. Now that word for rebellion is the Greek word apostasia. And throughout Christian history, for all 2,000 years of Christian history, every generation has talked about the coming great apostasy. And this is what this is referring to. And the rebellion is not out in the world. The rebellion's in the church. So that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in, um, in, his, in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth to bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Here's the important verse that gets to your answer now. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
So the answer to your question is, no, they're not stupid. God's judging them. And basically saying, oh, really? You don't care about the truth? You don't really want to worship me? You don't want to be saved? Fine. I'm going to make it so that you look stupid. You're just going to believe every blatantly false teacher coming down the pipe, and you're going to believe that person's really a person of God. And I'm going to make a statement here that is really politically incorrect. But what I'm going to say is factually true. Is my other vocation that I have, you know, as doing radio and, you know, offering critique of what's going on in evangelicalism. There are certain people today, and I'm not making this up, who are out there putting themselves forward as prophets or prophetesses. And I know for a fact some of these people are actually certifiably bunkers. They actually have a mental illness. And people are believing that they are prophets and prophetesses. And I can. And it always fascinates me, the ones that I know from their family members who've contacted me and said, my brother, my sister, that person is certified. Yeah, they've spent time in institutions. They're not mentally stable. And now they're traveling the world claiming to be hearing from God. And, you know, there's some kind of prophetic visionaries. And I'm sitting there going, you've got to be kidding me. There are literally people who are saying, oh, this person is a man of God. This person is a woman of God. She's a prophetess. And no, she's not. She's actually mentally ill. And everyone's sitting there going, oh, that's from God. And I'm thinking, this is an example of what is said here. God sends a strong delusion. Let me give you another cross-reference then, also then, Marilyn. In Romans chapter 1, we see kind of the descent into sin, um, where it says, starting at verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. So the, here we, well, we're, we're human beings, we've got the truth, and what do we do with it? We suppress it. And the mental, and the kind of the word picture that's set up in the Greek, it's, it's, I liken it to, you know, when somebody smokes a cigarette and they get down to the butt and they put the butt on the ground and they, and they go like that. That's the suppressing of the truth. There's the truth. I'm going to just stamp it out, right? So watch what happens as a result of this. For what may be known by God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So the idea then is this, is the inability to know the truth and worse this craziness of believing what is a patently absurd is all actually a judgment from God. That's the scary thing. 
And so this is why, as Christians, we guard two things very carefully, our doctrine and our lives. Because we see in Scripture that those who depart from sound doctrine, they fall into these delusions. But also on the same token, those who chase after their own sinful lusts and wantonly practice sin and turn the gospel of Christ into a license to sin, that God oftentimes will judge that person with this exact same judgment. So the idea here is is that you don't tempt God. Does that make sense? He is holy. He is just. He has revealed His will for us. And as Christians, we are to contend with our sinful flesh. We are to resist the devil. And does that mean that we always come out on top? No. But you keep striving. Now, do you remember years ago, who was it? Was it Patty Hearst who was taken hostage by uh, some terrorist group? And what happened to her? She became one of them. So I want you to kind of think of it this way. As Christians, as Christians, we are always, the devil is always planning the next hostage-taking incident. And you may be one of the hostages he wants to take. And so he's going to take you down the road of false doctrine. Or he's going to take you down the road of sin. You're going to feel like you're hijacked. But you don't want to end up like Patty Hearst. When given the right, the, the ability to go free, she's now one of them. The idea then is, is that there's always going to be temptations to sin. There's going to be times when the devil's going to come at you hard and may even for a short time really get the upper hand. But as soon as you have an opportunity to escape, flee. Does that make sense? And see, that's the thing. It's not that Christians don't sin. It's that they never are satisfied and stay put when they're taken hostage and they fight back. Does that make sense? Right. We do not suffer from Stockholm Syndrome when it comes to the devil. So, coming back then. Okay, so does that answer your question, by the way, Marilyn? Thank you very much. Okay, good question. All right, let's come back to our text then. So, we see here as a result of the fall... We are enslaved in the same way Israel was enslaved. Again, this is a picture of the story we find ourselves in. So then it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, and this is a fascinating, fascinating little bit, and this kind of reiterates one of the things I've said before, is that sometimes as Christians, you know, we have the Ten Commandments, but sometimes the only right thing for us to do is break one of them. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, I know. I'll explain in a second here. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one who was named Shipra and the other Pua. This is an honor, by the way, to have their names written in Scripture. That's a big deal. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, boy, I would hate to see something like that. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So notice, they flat out disobeyed a direct order from the king himself. Fourth commandment's in play, is it not? Honor your father and mother. This includes all the way up to the government officials. So here they're breaking the fourth commandment. Straight up. Is God going to punish them? For this? So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Watch this one. 
The midwife said to Pharaoh, Oh, those Hebrew women. Whew, they're not like Egyptian women. Oh, they're vigorous. And they give birth before the midwife comes to them. They just pop them babies right out. <laughs> so now we've got breaking of the fourth commandment. We've got breaking of the eighth commandment. We've got all kinds of commandment breaking going all up in here. They, oh, that's right. They did. You shall not murder. Uh-huh. So you notice here, sometimes as Christians, because of the cursed creation that we find ourselves in, and because of the devil and his unreasonable and sinful demands, sometimes the only right thing to do is to break a few of the commandments. So they just flat out lied to his face, flat out disobeyed a direct order. So what is God going to do with them? Well, we're going to find out. Verse 20. So God dealt with the mid, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Are they punished for their breaking of these commandments? No. They're blessed. So this creates the fascinating scenario. And I think as the United States gets darker and darker, culturally and morally, we need to keep this one tucked away. You never know. You may in your lifetime see the need to disobey the government and to obey God. Uh Uh-huh. Well, now this is this kind of opens up an interesting thing here. Now we're going to talk about vocation real quick. When a soldier kills the enemy, that is not a breaking of the commandment that says thou shalt not murder. Right? When it says thou shalt not kill, the Hebrew word really is referring to murder. This is premeditated murder of your, you know, your brother, your sister, your neighbor. So when a soldier goes to war and in the course of executing his duties must kill the enemy for the sake of the common good, in that case, that's not a sin. That's actually a good work. I know it's weird to think of it that way, but that's exactly how you have to think about it. Because they're in the vocation of soldier. They've been tasked with protecting us. Well, now look at the Old Testament. King David, he was a soldier. He goes and he fights the Philistines. Was he murdering or was he doing good works in his vocation as soldier. He was doing a good work. Think of it also this way. When it comes to that gift from God, sex. Before you're married, if you're having sex, that's a sin. After you are married, sex is not a sin. It's a good work. So you get the idea then. Okay. So Self-defense is actually permitted in Scripture. It is not considered murder. No, I knew that. Yeah. But I thought it was on the same list, but it's at a different Yeah. You might, that's a, I mean, we all own firearms, right? Okay, right. Of course we do. So if somebody were to break into your house and they, this was a dangerous situation, in order to protect yourself and your little ones, you, and, you discharge your weapon and the person is dispatched into eternity. Make sure they're in the house. Yeah. yeah. Make sure they're in the house. 
and pick up the shell casings. <laughs> yeah, if you gun them down in your yard, make sure to pick up the shell casings and then just drag them in and mop up the blood. Anyway, <laughs> and that's, a, that's, not, that's a joke. Minnesota <clears throat> yeah. Minnesota law? Yeah. Don't kill him outside if you didn't drag him in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. Take a sign. Thieves, please come inside. Don't stay out. <laughs> yeah. We'll search you when you're outside. Yeah. So you'll notice then, coming back to Renee's point then, a soldier killing the enemy in the, in the line of duty in battle, that's not a breaking of the commandments. So it's not a parallel. So you, you get the idea here. So we, when we look at the commandments, we understand that they are there for us. But as Christians, sometimes we may put, be put into that catch-22. Maybe put into that catch-22. And what do you do? You have to do the right thing, which oftentimes will involve doing the wrong thing, which is weird, really weird. So you know, the, the, the Germans who were hiding Jews during the, holo, you know, during the Holocaust... And the SS knocks on their door, are you hiding Jews? Of course not. You can come look if you like. Lying to their face. So the idea then is, is that you've got to think carefully. There may come an opportunity for you to break a commandment and in so doing, do a good work. But it's, that's, a, that's a tenuous situation. It's a fine line. In other words, it is better to save life. You, know, you love your neighbor by protecting him. When the government goes rogue, which they do from time to time, when the government goes rogue and is no longer do, acting in accordance with their God-given duties to punish evildoers, but they are instead punishing those who are doing good, you have to resist the government. And here's the important part, and I th- we'll talk about this just in, in passing. When we are put into a situation as Christians where we must resist the government, we don't do so in a way merely that we're engaging in some kind of activism. And I I want you to think about this. Activism is a good way to correct an injustice in society. And oftentimes people need to be engaging in activism in order to address injustices. But as Christians, as the church, let's just kind of put it this way. When the government is sinning, when the government has gone rogue and they're no longer acting in accordance with their God-given mandate, it's the people in the government who are doing this, the leaders and people like that who've made these decisions. We must love them enough to say, not only will I not obey you, I'm going to tell you you need to repent because what you're doing is wicked and evil and you need to repent and be forgiven. You see, if you just engage in social justice warrior type stuff where I'm going to oppose the injustices of society, then it becomes a power struggle. Who's going to get the upper hand? And then let's say you correct the injustice. The people who were perpetrating the injustice have just lost power, but they're still going to hell. But if they don't know, if, if they truly believe they are right. Uh-huh. And you ask them to repent. Yeah. What are we going to repent on? Because to them, they're right. Well, here's the thing. We're messengers, right? Exactly. Okay. But if you sit there and try and tell them, you're a bad person, you you are causing harm, and they're going to sit there and go, Are they? Scripture says the law of God's written on their heart. 
We, of course they are. But see, here's the deal. What are they doing? They're suppressing the truth, which means they already know it and they already know you're wrong. So when we speak prophetically and we speak God's law, what that does is it lifts the foot up and says, oh, look what you're doing. You're suppressing the truth. They know what they're doing is wrong and they know it deep down inside. They know it in the front of their mind. And you know what? At some point, they've just abandoned themselves to it and just decided to go whole hog. So, oh, he knew what he was doing was wrong. Oh, yeah. Stalin might have died as a Christian. I have not heard that story. Let's save that for another time. But still, okay, so they, they were all power. Uh-huh. They wanted all power. Yeah. People like that are only going to want that power. They're not going to comprehend anything else. Oh, they, they, here's the thing. Their will to power is sinful and they know it. So we get to speak prophetically. But remember, we have two words, not one. The first word is law. And so our word to them is, you know what you're doing is wrong. And you just have to say it like that because they already have the law of God written on their heart. And if you're not sure, let me tell you what God's law says. You appeal... Oh, I know. Of course. Of course. And then you sit there and say, you need to repent. But Christ has bled and died for these sins, and you need to be forgiven of them. And if they take your head off, so be it. Then then they just hasten you being able to be with Jesus and be done with all of this nonsense anyway. I don't know if you've noticed, this life is a little difficult. So, all right, Stephen. Um, Back to the original question. Um, Whenever we're telling them, you know, that they're sinners. What are we doing, ultimately? Yeah, we're just messengers delivering the king's edict. Exactly. Only the king will be able to turn their mind. Yeah. Only the king will be able to convince them that they are sinners, and that Christ has bled and died for them. Mm-hmm. We're just delivering that message. So, yeah. whenever you're doing this, you know, don't trust in your own, you know, like, oh, I'm going to change this person. That's the wrong attitude. Christ is going to change him. It's yeah. like he's done for us. Right. And, and that's the idea. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great clarification. It's not your job to make them understand. It's not your job to convince them. It's not your job to get, get them to walk the, you know, walk the aisle, to get on their knees and pray a prayer. Your job is to deliver a message. And the message is from God. That's the idea. So here we've got Shipra and Pua, and they are being blessed by God, given families of their own. And you'll note here a family... And children is a blessing from God. It is not a curse. I have to note this because we live in a day when what? what how does the culture at large think about children? They're not male or female. There's a lot of different... <sighs> okay, different topic. But how do they think of children? They're a burden. They don't have rights. How many of them have we murdered before they were ever born? 55 million and it's still... Climbing. 55 million unborn children. Yeah. Right? This is, this is awful. And notice that our sinful condition causes us to think that somehow children are a burden, a drain, a curse. Oh, I can't give birth to that child because I want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and they're just going to hold me back. Belagna. 
Well, I look on the package, it says Belog Nah. <laughs> Yeah, right. There. That's the Hebrew version of baloney. It's blogna. <laughs> Isn't it spelled blogna? Never mind. Yeah, you get that. That's like homogenized. It's you know homogenized. Anyway. <laughs> so notice how does God bless Shipra and Pua with children? That's right. And so here, this points out that our our babies are a blessing from God. They're not a curse. We're, they're not burdens. They're blessings. I wish we would see them as such. Because midwives fear God, he gave them families. Pharaoh commanded all his people, and this is where it gets really fun. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a little bit of a spoiler alert. So Pharaoh orders innocents to be killed. This should remind you of Herod and what he commanded to kill the Messiah. Because what's coming here is God's going to raise up a savior. It's going to be Moses in this story. The other part of this is that, go forward in the story just a little bit. What is the fate of Pharaoh's armies at the Red Sea, drowning in the Red Sea? So there's a real sense. Now notice, God is the one who vindicates. So we leave vengeance to God. And God, ultimately, he's going to avenge the blood of all of these small children by drowning the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Poetic justice of a like, monumental cosmic scale. Stephen. Uh, going back to Marilyn's question, um, why are the Israelites so stupid? Why don't they um, basically uh, go and create a rebellion? Um, I, would, I would say that there was a rebellion going on against Pharaoh, the God King, right? Israelites didn't worship Pharaoh, the God King. They worshiped the one true God. Yeah. And in this rebellion, the Egyptians oppressed them. Yeah. They were trying to oppress the one true God by killing off all the males. Right. Completely slaughtering the culture because back at that time, that's who taught you everything. You know, everything was vested in the man. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, there was a rebellion, honestly. Now, we're going to find out as the story unfolds that there is already, at this time in Israel, syncretism. All right? So they, they, don't, they don't really, at this point, represent pure worship of the one true God. And so we're going to see that the idolatrous practices of the Egyptians has had and left an indelible mark in the minds and the hearts of even the children of Israel. We'll see that later. So, but you're right, though. Those who are worshiping Yahweh are standing in direct opposition to those who worship Pharaoh. And that's the thing. The God kings demand that you worship them. And think about when Christianity first spread in the Roman Empire. Oh boy, that created a conflict. Because the Christians were commanded to do an act of worship to Caesar. And they didn't. And how did that go for them? It led to a lot of them being martyred. Caesar insisting that you worship him by just putting a pinch of incense in the fire and saying, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. And they couldn't do it because Jesus is Lord. 
All right, so we've got that, and we've noted the fact that now we see kind of that same motif, the killing of the innocents. What happens in the Old Testament is then fulfilled in Christ when Herod orders, after the story of the Magi. In fact, let's, let's take a look at it real quick in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me get there. Start in um, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. So when you read in your New Testament, see the word Jesus Christ, you know, Christ, always remember that the Greek word Christos is synonymous with the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed one. Christos means anointed one. So when we're saying Jesus is the Christ, we're saying he is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. So when they're asking, where's the Messiah to be born? That's really probably how that comes out, but it's translated into Greek as Christos. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is the shepherd of my people Israel. Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, real quick, how many wise men does the text say there were? Doesn't say. Okay, a little bit of a note here. The reason why the tradition gets started that there are three of them is because there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I would argue that if there were only three of them, Herod might have had them knocked off. <laughs> he just seems like that kind of fellow to me. So, um, you know, I like to think of the wise guys, I mean, sorry, the wise men, I like to think of them as being more than three. There are three gifts, but that does not mean there are only three of them. So, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph having a dream. Hmm. Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So when, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise guys... <laughs> yeah, I don't... There is a band that plays in Grand Forks named the Wise Guys. Uh, okay. No, we shall go see him now. Yeah. So when he was tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region 
who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled, was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the death of the innocents, you notice here, where's Jesus? Egypt. What's happening? These little children are being killed. We see Pharaoh doing it 1,600 years ago. We see Herod doing it 2000, you know, not 3,600 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Herod doing the same thing. All of this, these motifs, they're not accidental. And so when you see the parallels between Christ and even this salvation story, you can see how the motifs are working, and you realize there's a lot of prophecy going on in the lives of these people. So coming back to our story... So let every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile. You shall let every daughter lived. And so here we've got all these little children dying. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Notice here, we've got a basket. And the word for basket is teva, which is the exact same word for ark. In fact, you can kind of see it right here. Here's the, here's the Hebrew word teva, and it means an ark. I don't know why they translated it as basket because, well, clearly it's got to be something like that. But it literally says she made him an ark. And remember Noah's ark? Noah's ark is covered with what? Pitch. It's, this, it's like there's a direct connection between Noah's ark and this ark here. Saved through water. And that's kind of our theme. Let me come back to one of our motifs. Salvation through water. This is a baptismal reference, if you would. So notice, this is an example of salvation through water. The ark. Noah and his family are saved in the ark through water. The children of Israel are soon going to walk on dry ground through the Red Sea. Salvation through water. And the New Testament explicitly describes that as their baptism. So here we've got little Moses. He doesn't even have a name yet. Right? He's not named yet Moses. We have little Moses, and he's being saved in an ark. Important little thing. So she put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the ark among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman 
took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Drawn out of the water. So we're starting to see the themes developing, the motifs. So we don't know anything about Moses' in-between time in the Scripture, from, the in-between, from this time until what happens next. And so Moses, it's, it's similar to Jesus. You know, the last we hear of Jesus as a child is like he's 11 or 12 years old, right? And that's when he stayed behind when his parent, yeah, after the Passover, he stayed back in Jerusalem, was talking with the people in the, in the temple and talking to the chief priests and, and having great theological conversations with them, right? And they figured out after three days that Jesus wasn't with them. They freaked out, thought, oh, goodness, we've lost the Messiah. And, you know, you can imagine how your heart stops with something like that. And then they go and he says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And then that's the last we hear of his childhood. Similar with Moses. We don't know what happens in the in-between time. Now, there is Jewish tradition that you can look up. In fact, the, this, the, some Jewish tradition tries to fill in the gaps, but we don't know if that's history or legend. It's hard to tease out which part is history and which part is le- legend. So as Christians, we say, we, well, we're not given to know this. We only know what's in the text, so we we keep our mind in between. Then, of course, then again, you watch all of the movies or the, even the cartoon movies, you know, adaptations of this story. They spend a lot of time on Moses as the prince of Egypt, but we know practically nothing about that. We know a little bit. Let me give you a cross-reference here. Let me get there real quick. We're going to be in Hebrews. 11, where we do get some more data. Hebrews 11.23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So we know this, that his parents did this by faith, because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Isn't that fascinating? He considered the reproach of Christ. Notice what the text says. The reproach of Christ. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So this helps us a little bit. We know that he, once he gets older, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And he did all of these things by faith. So Moses is held up as a man of faith. Clearly, in the short amount of time that he had with his mother before he goes into the house of Pharaoh to be raised as the the son of one of the daughters of Pharaoh, 
Somehow God's word got a hold of him and got into him, probably through his parents. And so when he gets older, it is more treasure to suffer the reproach of Christ, to be hated, mistreated, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. So notice he's got, he's got a way of thinking that is totally backwards to what, how the world thinks and how many of us think automatically. And so he's held up to us as an example of faith. Now we're going to stop there today and we will pick up more of Exodus next Sunday. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.